If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Revelation chapter 2. We're in a series right now on the last book of the Bible called The Revelation. And we're in a section where Jesus is walking among the churches, evaluating, checking them for integrity and what is their relative health. And he's giving a message to every church, and we're asking as we go, what is Jesus saying to us, not just as a church, but as individual believers? Last week, we saw that Jesus gave a bold message to Ephesus and Laodicea. And this week, we're coupling two other cities together because they have so much in common. They are Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, if you go just up the road, about 35 miles, when you think about it, that's roughly the distance between our Saratoga and Latham locations. You would find a church known as Smyrna, a city called Smyrna. By the way, it's the only one of these seven cities that is still a vibrant, bustling city to this day. It's today called Izmir, but it is still very, very vibrant and alive. Back then, it was called Smyrna, and there was a church there. But here's the thing. The church was struggling. Caesar Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD, has insisted on emperor worship. And as a citizen of Smyrna, if you refused to practice it, you were subject to either a fine, the confiscation of your property, which the government had a right to take. Perhaps you could lose your job, you could be banished to a mine, and worst of all, you could actually be put to death in the arena. Now, I want you to see again today these seven cities. You'll notice that Ephesus is here. You go up the road 35 miles. There is Smyrna. As you can see, Smyrna was a very important seaport town. So there was a lot of commerce going on. Also, you may be interested to know that Smyrna uh, aesthetically was one of the most beautiful or pleasing of all of these cities. Someone had the foresight to lay the streets out wide and beautiful. And on the tops of the hills around the city were temples dedicated to various Greco-Roman gods. Also in Smyrna was an amphitheater that seated over 20,000 people that was dedicated to emperor worship. So we're studying that city, and we're also looking over here to Philadelphia. I want you to see the close-up of those two. Those are the two cities we're talking about today in this study. Now, if you were a Christian in Smyrna or Philadelphia, let me ask you, would you be quick to go to the local Christian music concert if you knew you could be killed for it? I don't think so. Being a Christian in these cities is hard. To make matters worse, in both of these cities, particularly in Smyrna, there was a substantial colony of Jewish people who were aggressively hostile to Christianity. 
They opposed the Christians, and these Jewish people exercised considerable influence over the civil authorities. <laughs> Some years later, by the way, this antagonistic group of Jews came together with Gentiles, formed a mob, and called for the death of the bishop of the church, whose name was Polycarp. Now, I'm going to tell you more about him later, but for now, just know that Polycarp was a young leader when this letter was written. He had been a disciple of the Apostle John, the very one who is the human author of this letter called Revelation. And so here's Polycarp, pastoring in Smyrna, and he receives this letter from his old mentor, the Apostle John. And here is what he reads aloud to his congregation in Smyrna. Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, look at the contrast there between Laodicea last week. They thought they were rich, but Jesus said, you're poor. And today, the Lord says, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. What an interesting contrast. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Let's push pause right there. What does he mean by those who say they're Jews and are not? Does he mean they were just lying about their ethnicity? No. He even calls them here a synagogue of Satan, a very harsh term. Well, as I mentioned, Smyrna had a substantial colony of aggressively hostile Jewish people toward the Christians. They were truly Jews by race and religion. They went to the synagogue to worship the Lord. But in reality, inwardly, John is saying they're not Jews because they've rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And they've confirmed that rejection by persecuting his church. You may recall, by the way, that Paul made this amazing statement in Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, where he said, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, Paul says, a man's a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. See, according to the apostle Paul, true Jews are people of the Messiah. Whether they're Jewish in background or Gentile doesn't matter. Do they belong to the Messiah Jesus? That's what he's saying. He says the same thing in Philippians 3, verse 3, where he says, it's we who are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So John is making a real distinction here between literal Israel, the Jews, and spiritual Israel, the church. That's you and me. That's all who belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, some of you will be in prison. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution, catch this part, for 10 days. Now, knowing what you know about this book so far, 
would you immediately believe he's saying 10 literal days? You're going to be in prison 10 days, then you'll get out. No, 10 here is a stylized number. It represents an idea. All he's basically saying in that number is, it's going to last for a while, but it won't go on forever. It'll be over. Be faithful even to the point of death. He goes on to say in verse 10, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, what does this first death, second death thing mean? He's saying here, look, you may be martyred for your faith. That's the death of your body. That's the first death. That could happen, but you're not going to be hurt at all by the second death. The first death, the death of the body. All people, believers and non-believers, will experience that. But the eternal death is the second death. That's the death of the soul. And that's mentioned a few times in this book. You may recall Jesus himself saying, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there's two striking things to me about this letter to Smyrna. One is how short it is. Did you catch that? It's one of the shortest of all. It's pithy to the point. The second thing that strikes me is he says nothing critical or negative. Wow, what a contrast. You remember last week, right? He didn't say one positive thing to Laodicea. Here, he says not one negative thing to Smyrna. I find that very interesting. I think there's a word here or a lesson here for parents. If you're a parent today of multiple children, you know how this works, right? Have you noticed how if you've got multiple children in your family, how they have such different personalities at times? It's true, isn't it? You may have one child, boy, they want you to deal with them straight. They just want the truth. They want it to be undiluted. They just want you to call a spade a spade, cut to the chase. And so you've learned through the years, they respond best to that approach. But if you treated another one of your children that way, they would be devastated. It would seem too harsh. All kids need encouragement, but some just need a lot more comforting and building up than others. And so what do you do? As a wise parent, you change your approach depending on the child and depending on the challenge that they're facing. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here with the churches. You'll notice his approach is different depending on what they're going through. Last week, we had compromising churches, and his message was harsh. This week, we have suffering churches, and his message is much more mild and encouraging. And so that's why we're grouping Philadelphia and Smyrna together. And with that said, let's look now at his message to the other church before we tie it all together and see what we can apply. We're now in chapter three, starting in verse seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. 
What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Notice that phrase appears in both of these letters. In both cities, there was a group of aggressive and and hostile uh, Jewish people who were, were making some trouble for these believers, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's gonna come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Catch what he says next. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there you have it a personal message to the Smyrnans and to the Philadelphians. And if you boil it all down, the Lord's message to both of these suffering, struggling churches is this, be faithful no matter what. That's his message. Hold on. I know you're struggling. I know you have little strength. Look, I'm coming soon. Hang in there. Be encouraged. Heaven is your inheritance. You're not going to be hurt at all by the second death. Now, what are we to make of this for our own lives? As we personalize and apply this, there are a couple of things that I just want to draw your attention attention to as we go down the home stretch here. The first thing I want you to notice is that little phrase, I know. Did you see that? Repeatedly, He says to these churches, I know. In fact, if you're comparing and contrasting, he says, I know in every message to the seven churches. And here to Philadelphia, he actually says it twice. Now, here's why that's significant. I'm convinced we are not always sure that he knows. You ever been there? Does Jesus really know the tears I cry? Does he really know the pain I'm feeling? I mean, come on, does the Lord really know this loneliness and and the emptiness that I felt this week? Does he really know the struggles I face at work and the financial worries I have? Is he aware? And just like to these churches, the message of God to you today is Jesus says, I know, and that is good news indeed. Maybe. You're the parent of a child with disabilities. And you feel very much alone in your struggles. And when you're behind closed doors, the things you, you, you have to face, the feelings of being overwhelmed, you just think nobody gets it. And then one day you meet another family with a child with similar needs. And there's almost this immediate connection 
and you begin to share your story and pour out your heart and, and they nod and they listen and, and they say, I know, I know, I know. There's this amazing strength that's found as you tell them about your struggles and they nod and say, yes, I know. That's our struggle. Jesus says, I know to every church. And we're happy about that. That's so comforting. But I just have got to say, it's also sobering, isn't it? Because it's good that he knows, but we're not always sure we're happy that he really knows, right? That means he knows this hidden sin in my life. That means he knows the broken promises and the commitments that I haven't kept. So Jesus says, I know what you've been doing. I know what you're going through. Now, the word used for suffering here, or afflictions rather, is the word used in the wine press when the grapes are crushed. And if you're feeling that crushing power of life today, if you feel like your very life is being crushed out of you, Jesus says to you today, I know where you are. I know how that feels. And the truth of the matter is, some of you are particularly resonating with this message because I know from personal conversations, some of you have lost a job because of your faith in Jesus Christ as the word got out. Some of you have not received promotions you should have received. You've been overlooked because it was known by some that you are a follower, a believer in Jesus. I know for a fact that some of you have literally been written out of the family will because you started to believe in Jesus Christ and your family knows it. Some of you have had friends literally turn on you, disown you, stab you in the back because of your faith in Christ. And so suffering to one degree or another is very real for many of you. But let's be clear today. Probably none of us are suffering right now like these Christians were experiencing in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Their crushing was on a different kind of level because they were dealing with torture and death. It's just not common for us to experience it on that level. But that kind of suffering is common today in the world for followers of Jesus. I mean, just go to Syria. Ask the Christians in Syria if you can still find any who'll tell you about their family members being tortured and executed because they were followers of Jesus Christ. You want to know if Christians really get this suffering thing? Go to North Korea today. The groups who follow persecuted Christians tell us there are easily over 30,000 North Korean people who are in prison camps today, suffering, being worked to death. Their life expectancy is just a few years in these camps. And their one crime, their one crime is they believe in Jesus and they refuse to renounce their faith. That's it. That's why they're there. Not long ago in Kazakhstan, 
A Christian mother was fined a month's salary because her nine-year-old son gave the teacher a Christian CD, and on the front of the CD, it said, Jesus loves you. Teacher called the police. Woman was fined an entire month's salary. In Egypt, Egypt, during the past two years, more than 100 Christian churches have been attacked. That's only the ones that are documented. A 10-year-old girl was returning from a Bible study at one of those local evangelical churches. And as she walked home with her Bible in her arm, she was gunned down and killed, 10 years old. In Sudan today, Sudanese troops gather Christians in the back of trucks, drive them far into the desert, out in the wilderness with no water, no food, no supplies, and leave them there to die. Just this past April, at Kenya's Garissa University, 147 people were killed this past April. Students were separated by religion. Muslims were allowed to leave, but death was reserved for the Christians. In Iraq, Christians have experienced increasing persecution. One missionary who can only be identified for his own safety as William writes, the hope of the Christians in Iraq is quickly fading away. One mother in the church writes the following, there are more bombs and more threats toward Christians. They send threatening messages to our mobile phones. They throw letters in our homes. There's more fear. Many Christians in Baghdad, she says, simply stay indoors because it's too dangerous for them to leave their homes. Oh, this is not meant to be some guilt trip. Please, no, 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 get rid of that. But we do need to be aware of what Christians, fellow believers in other parts of the world are experiencing. And Jesus says to them, I know. Let me give you one other example, an amazing group called Asian Access. This is a group that ministers in mostly in Southern Asia, very sensitive areas for the most part. And they're largely a church planting group. And so they train young leaders to be church planters. And, and here's what they're training their young leaders to ask new converts before they are baptized. Seven questions they teach them to ask. Here are the seven questions that the church planters are being trained to ask these new believers. Number one, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Two, are you willing to lose your job? Because they know many of them will when the word gets out. Three, are you willing to forgive those who persecute you and share the love of Christ with them? Four, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Five, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Six, are you willing to go to prison? And seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? And if they're willing, they sign their name on the paper, knowing that if they sign that paper and get caught, it is a minimum mandatory sentence of three years hard labor. But they also know that the church planter, if he's caught, it's a minimum mandatory six years in prison, hard labor. And guess what? The church is flourishing. 
because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I say it again, this is not meant to be some artificial guilt trip, but honestly, in comparison to that, I'm not going through much. I'm sorry. Now, don't misunderstand me. Everybody comes to Jesus in exactly the same way. You know how? We repent of our sins and we trust in Christ alone to save us. Everybody comes to Jesus in exactly that way. But what it requires of us to follow Jesus, ah, ah, that is very different depending on the culture in which you live. And here's my point. I think we should be inspired by our brothers and sisters in Christ who are stepping up just like the Christians in Smyrna and Philadelphia were 2,000 years ago. They're stepping up and saying, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. I think this should translate into us being very thankful, very grateful, and very prayerful for them. Don't you? Don't you believe we ought to be inspired by their example? I'll tell you, folks, sometimes I can just hardly take it when I read stories like this of dear Christians around the world, and I just think about me, and I I think about us here at Grace, and I, I think about what God could do through us if we just had that kind of tenacity and commitment. But in America... We think we're really pushing people, really giving a challenge. If we just challenge people to become generous givers and tithe. In fact, many churches won't even even say that. They won't even challenge people with that because it's just too hard. I had a dear brother tell me recently, he's one of these Christ-centered followers in our church, an amazingly mature guy. He and his wife, he was sharing with me how challenging it was for them when they became brand new believers. They were just beginners in Christ years ago. And he said the idea of tithing was like going to the moon for them. He said they couldn't even fathom how they could ever do that. And he said today, that is one of their greatest joys of being Christ followers, that they get to actually give, not just money, but time. They get to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. I can't imagine what God could do with us as a church if we were inspired by these Christians around the world. Maybe we should just stand up today and say, Lord, I don't want to play it safe. Lord, I don't even want an easy life. God, don't give me an easy life. Give me a meaningful life. God, I want to be out there on the edge. I want to be pioneering something for you. Folks, we need a lot more vision We need to think a lot bigger than we usually do. Jesus says to every Christian who's suffering because of that kind of commitment, I know. I know what it's like. So what about you? Are you here today and you're going, Pastor, I got to tell you, I don't need... I don't even know if I can pay my bills this month. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my house. Jesus says to you, I know. I know what that's like. You know what? When I was on this earth, I didn't even have a place to lay my head. In fact, when I was born, they put me in an animal feeding trough. 
That's how I got started. Maybe you say today, Pastor, I'm a victim of injustice. I just can't seem to catch a break. Everything goes wrong. People misunderstand me. You know what Jesus says to you today? He says, I know what that's like. I had people accuse me of crimes I did not commit. Some of you today are looking at me and you're going, but pastor, I feel so abandoned and alone. I mean, people I cared about have let me down. My own family, some cases, has turned their back. Oh, can you hear the word of God today for you? Jesus is looking at you today, friend, and he's saying, I know, I know what that's like. There was a time in my life when my very family thought I had lost it. Can I tell you, I know what you're going through. There was a time in my life when my closest friends betrayed me and fled the very moment I needed them the most. I know. And by the way, should any of you, should any of you, any of you, listening to me right now, ever find yourself beaten to within an inch of death and nailed to a tree, Jesus says to you today, I know what that's like. I know what that's like. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. You see, what I'm saying to you today, dear friends, is that trials are like God's open door for us to deepen and to demonstrate our faith and bring glory to God. By the way, you know that pastor I mentioned from Smyrna, the young leader named Polycarp? Well, guess what? When the old apostle John passed away, Polycarp later, after being a pastor for decades in Smyrna, he later became an overseer, a a bishop of sorts, of, of a number of churches, just like John had been. And one day, while still living in Smyrna, the Roman captain with the troops came and knocked on his door. He's 86 years old now, Polycarp. And the Roman captain looked at him and said, look, just say Caesar is Lord. And then he said, you don't even have to mean it. You don't even have to believe it. Just say it. Caesar is Lord. And we can forget what we've come here today to do to you. Polycarp's answer was classic. He said, for these 86 years now, he has been my God and never once betrayed me. How can I now betray my Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ? They arrested him, marched him away to that 20,000-seat amphitheater, and they threatened to burn him at the stake if he did not renounce his beliefs and declare Caesar as Lord. Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. Why do you delay? 
bring on what you will. And the observer said that as the flames engulfed his body, they heard Polycarp praying. Not for God's wrath to come down on his tormentors, not even for deliverance. You know what this man prayed? He said, God, I thank you today that you've considered me worthy to be counted among your martyrs. And so Polycarp died as he lived, giving glory to God. May we do the same. May we do the same. So today I want us to end this service in an unusual way. I want us to show solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask you right now just to stand to your feet. Would you do that up in Saratoga? Would you stand to your feet in Greenbush? Would you in Half Moon just get to your feet in Latham? Would you stand up on your feet right now? Everybody who's able, would you just stand to your feet? And we're gonna read something together off the screens. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. What a declaration of truth this is. And we're going to declare it out loud together. And I want you, as you declare this, as we stand together and say these words together, we're standing together in solidarity with those who are suffering for Christ. Are you ready? Let's say these words together. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Amen and amen. Lord, we are so privileged to gather here in the capital region of New York without many serious concerns or fears of persecution. Thank you. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are hiding in basements, languishing and starving in prisons, who are visiting the graveside of a lost child. I pray you would fill them with your hope, Lord. And I don't want us to walk out of here feeling guilty. I want us to walk out of here feeling grateful and inspired. Grateful for the blessings inspired by those who've been faithful through so much. So God, would you help us have the ears to hear? Would you wake us up, wake us up. Wake us up to what you want to accomplish through this church around the world. Help us to see the opportunity, the open door you've placed before us. We need a lot bigger vision. It's not just this community. It's around the world that you want to use this family. So we make ourselves available, Lord. All that we are and all that we have is yours. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.